In our world of the subscription economy, so many companies are still in this kind of on-premise, old-school mindset where it's all about the sale, it's all about the new logo, they ring the bell, they hit the gong, and they celebrate because they have a new logo. But in our world of subscriptions and SaaS, that's just the beginning. Gamesight presents the Game Changer Podcast with host Adam Joseph. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of the Gainsight Game Changer podcast series. I'm Adam Joseph, your host and the Senior Director of Customer Success at Gainsight. So in my opinion, and I think it's shared by many, many others, is that onboarding is the most critical part of the customer journey. Get it wrong and you're behind the eight ball from the very beginning of the relationship. And sometimes, no matter how hard you work, you just can't recover. And ultimately, unfortunately, it's going to lead to downgrade or even total churn. And also during the onboarding process, you haven't yet earned your spurs as a trusted advisor. So even really small, tiny issues can go nuclear and you know senior executives on both sides being brought in. Moreover, your company's reputation is likely to be sullied publicly. There are so many forums now where people are sharing their experiences and you'll get uh, this kind of reputation for being hard to use and having a long time to value, which will no doubt put new customers from signing up to begin with. So how can you nail exceptional onboarding experiences for new customers every time and actually use the implementation process as a springboard for long-term success for both you, your customer and your own business? So I'm delighted to say that joining me today to discuss this really important topic is Donna Weber, customer success expert who leads the consultancy Springboard Solutions and is the author of a great new book on this topic, Onboarding Matters. Donna, a very, very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much, Adam. It's a real pleasure and a privilege to be here. And I can heartily recommend your book. We were just talking off air earlier. It's a great read. I really enjoyed it. So heartily recommend it to anyone listening today. And actually, I'm really envious because I haven't yet written a book. And actually, I've got some aspirations to write both a business book and you know, I'm, I'm one that, you know, everyone's got a great novel in their head, so a work of fiction as well. So now that you've gone through the process of writing a book, what tips might you have for people like me, aspiring authors who have got some great ideas, but just, you know, struggling to maybe sit down at a laptop and put that down into a, a novel or a business book as you've done? Well, I recommend the plotting approach, you know, really writing is all about plotting a little bit, for me at least, a little bit at a time. I think it's Mark Twain who said, you know, that success is 90% perspiration and 10% inspiration. (laughs) So it's really, you know, for me, I schedule the time in my calendar and just write a little every day. And it's a journey. And then the big thing that I'm learning with my book being uh, published now is that there's three distinct stages. There's the writing. And I thought that when my book was done being written, woohoo, I was across the finish line. But no, there's the publishing which is a whole stage in itself. And then there's the promoting. And that's that's a lot because you could write a great book, but if people don't know about it, it won't have the impact. So there's three distinct stages to be prepared for. <laughs> and I can imagine as well, after spending so long on a project and then finally getting out in the world, 
that nervousness as you wait for to see what people think of it and and get responses back after something that's been a project for just you for just so long. Oh my God. Well, f- well, first of all, let me know how I can support you in your writing and beyond. I'm here to support fellow authors. <laughs> and then I can't tell you, you know, I see folks with photos of them reading the book and all the pages they've highlighted and flagged, or it's, you know, smiling with the book or it's on their next to their laptop. I can't tell you how rewarding that is because writing a book is very insular and, you know, you're on your own and suddenly it's out in the world and people are yeah. are benefiting and sharing ideas. It just is so rewarding. I can't even tell you. Well, I, you know, there were so many points where I read it and I, it was just, you kind of nod along to it. And I remember there was a, a quote at the beginning, it could have even been in the forward actually, which said, poor onboarding is the main cause of churn. And it's estimated that more than half of customer churn is related to poor onboarding or, or poor customer service. And then I went on to read that one in three retention challenge software companies doesn't even have a formalized customer onboarding process. So clearly it's a big problem. Yet so many businesses haven't really put a, a formalized customer onboarding process in place. Why do you think that is? Well, it's so interesting, Adam, to me that, you know, in our world of the subscription economy, so many companies are still in this kind of on-premise, old-school mindset where it's all about the sale, it's all about the new logo, they ring the bell, they hit the gong, and they celebrate because they have a new logo. But in our world of subscriptions and SaaS, that's just the beginning because if you do not keep that customer, if they do not renew you can be losing money. So while you're celebrating, you're actually are losing money. You know, your company can be in big trouble. So I feel like there's, there's this lag and uh, it's very focused on the sale and the renewal and not really creating a seamless journey in between. Mm. In addition, you know, because the sale is so important, that initial sale and, you know, a company has to get those initial customers to be successful you know, there's so much focus on that sales and marketing engine, and that's been really built into this sophisticated engine the last decade. But when it comes to after the deal closes, it's generally very ad hoc and reactive. Yeah. And also, it's really important that as you as, a, as an organization matures, there are only so many different types of situations that they're going to see throughout onboarding. Yet, if they're just repeating the same mistakes over and over again and not pivoting and learning from that, then clearly that's going to be a recipe for disaster as well. But when we talk about onboarding, you know, I think it's important to really define what we mean because it's not so cut and dried, really. When does onboarding begin and when does it end? Is it purely at the time of when a deal is signed or actually do some parts of onboarding even begin before that? I know some CSMs or onboarding specialists sometimes join the latter part of the sales conversation. And when do we say that an implementation is complete? Is it when technically the customer is up and live or is it actually when they're starting to get some early value? What's your view on when it begins and when it ends? Well, it can be kind of blurry because generally companies think, well, you know, when the product's live, onboarding's done. But just because your product is live and deployed doesn't mean that companies are getting value. So I have a six-stage orchestrated onboarding framework, and it starts with Embark. I recommend starting before the deal closes because everyone needs to see the path to success. You know, what you were saying earlier emphasizes that it's no longer just about having a great product. It's all about having great service now as well. And Mm. there's been huge revolution in the consumer space. So consumers are really looking for relationships with the products they buy and consume. 
they're looking for great service and they really own the vendors now, you know, they, I like to say your customers own you. So there's been this huge revolution in the consumer space and that's having a lot of impact in the business to business space. So the companies we work with are made up of people. It's not just, we don't just sell to an account and we have a customer and they're a logo. There's actually people in there and those people have expectations around how they buy and use products and we need to be meeting those needs. And it's a lot more than just deploying a product. It's not more than technology. It needs to be about relationships. It needs to be about making sure you're capturing their goals and then making sure that they're meeting their goals. And as you said, it's all about value. So, you know, if I buy a hammer and it just sits in my toolbox, I'm not getting any value from it. But once I use it and realize, wow, it's a great hammer, then I'm getting value out of it. Now I have an opportunity to buy another hammer. I have an opportunity to tell you about this great hammer. And when we talk about value, I'm not buying a hammer because I like hammers. I'm buying it not even because I want a hole in the wall. I'm buying it because I probably want to hang something on the wall to make my home be more comfortable. Yeah. To make it more appealing. So really that's the value I'm looking for is that this lovely environment. Mm. I mean, one of the great challenges that I talk a lot about to the customer success community is delivering value at scale. So if you've just got one or even 10 customers, I'm not saying it's easier. It's easy, but it's easier when you've got less customers to deal with because you can give a much more high touch personalized service. When it comes to implementation, what advice might you have to if you're, you know, an organization is maybe bringing on 100 or even hundreds of customers each month? philosophically, they'll agree with you about, yeah, we've got to understand what value is and make sure we, we've got demonstrable ways of showing it. But what would your recommendation be in terms of having to deliver that at scale? And, you know, would you say that kind of automation or leveraging technology is key or isn't the way that you communicate to them? Well, so that's often when companies bring me in. So they might be doing well. They often tell me, oh, we're doing really well. They have more of a high touch engagement. Every customer is a special snowflake and they get the white glove treatment, right? And then they get some injection into some investment, some funding. And so that sales and marketing engine's revving up. And now they have this wave or tsunami of new customers coming at them. And so this white glove treatment that they've done that's been working well is no longer going to fit the bill. So that's when they bring me in. So what we do is we really map out this onboarding framework, and then we look at opportunities for scaling. I really like to leverage the Pareto principle, which is the 80-20 rule. And what are like the majority of customers? What's the foundation that all customers might need? And so we can get everyone to some value. What behavior do we want to drive to get them to that initial value? That might be the same or mostly the same for all accounts. And of course, there's a point where everyone, you know, maybe every account's different at some point, but in order to get to some basics, you might need to make things more similar rather than different. As an example, one company that I work with, they're a CRM platform based in Hungary, and they were like, hey, our platform, you can do anything. It's infinitely customizable. What do you want to do, customer? And the customer's like, they really didn't even know what a CRM is, but they're like, oh, well, we want to do this, that, and the other, and they're kind of doing this pie-in-the-sky thing. And the implementation teams are off for months, building, building, building. And by the time that they built this, you know, special castle <laughs> in the air, that the customers are, they're kind of checked out. It's been, it's been months. 
they don't even know how, what to do with it. So when we talked about driving customers to value and getting quick wins, that didn't it didn't just change what their onboarding looked like. It changed their whole product, what they create, what they market, what they sell, what they implement. And rather than having this infinitely customizable platform, they now have distinct products. Like here's the sales product, the marketing product, the HR product, the service product. And so now they have these distinct products to sell to. There's very minimal implementing and tailoring. And then they get them to some quick wins. We've defined some personas and jobs to be done. And now there's infinite opportunity to upsell to other other modules, other products. Um, but that's the way that we've addressed that. And I guess it's super important as part of a solution selling technique to, to kind of eke out what a customer's expecting during launch, but also to set their appropriate expectations that no one's going into the, you know, if it is a, a smaller customer thinking they're going to get that super white glove treatment, or if it's a high paying customer that they're going to just be onboarded, lever- you know, and just being given a, a, a self-help guide and go and it's now up to you. So both in terms of long-term success, but also what implementation looks like and what they can expect from it. I think super important to be really transparent about that during the sales process. It's really important. And I know sales teams are so reluctant to have anybody jump into their space. But I personally know, I was talking to a CFO of of a company I'm working with, and he was looking into a product. And during the sales cycle, they showed him, here's our onboarding path, Here's the CSM you're going to be working with. Here's what the timeline looks like. And he said, they have got their act together. I want to work with them. And it helped him close the deal. So it can be actually a great differentiator. It can actually help to shorten your sales cycle by showing that we have this proven workable method. We know what we're doing. We've done this before rather than like, oh, everyone's unique. Mm. And one of the ways that I've seen customer success mature over the years is that to begin with, the CSM was a role that ran the whole gambit of the customer journey. And they'd be responsible for, they they might actually get involved in the pre-sale, so almost what a sales engineer would be today, but also take on the implementation work and then into that nurture stage, look after the renewal as well. But clearly that doesn't scale effectively. And very often, and Gainsight being an example here as well, we have specialist teams that take on parts of the customer journey almost like a pod. We have a team within professional services taking on the the work within implementation, the CSM owning the kind of nurture stage, driving towards long-term value, and then an account manager managing the commercial renegotiation of the contract or for up or cross-sell opportunities. When it comes to onboarding specifically, Donna, do you see any pros or cons in having a specialist implementation team versus having a a CSM doing both? Or is it the the answer that many are very often it is with when I ask questions in CS? The first two words are, it depends, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, you know, it. it, so yes, it depends, Adam. (laughs) And, you know, as you're talking, you're making me think about how, you know, I've worked at startups. So when you work at a startup, generally folks are generalists, you know, everyone kind of changes their hat and pitches in and does whatever you need to get the company to be successful. But as the company grows, then roles become more specialized. In a similar way, customer success has been kind of a startup field. And so Mm. people jump in and like, whatever hat I need to wear, I'm going to wear it. I want to delight the customer. I want to make the customer happy. So that's where we started because that's where you start as a generalist. 
But as the as the field is maturing, we are seeing more of this specializing because that's what happens as companies and industries mature. So it really depends. You know, if you're working at a startup, you likely are going to be running around and doing it all. If you're at a larger company, you might be more specialized. I do see within companies as the organization matures, they, they start pulling in specialists. So it, mm. it really does depend. When it comes to looking at the measure of success for implementations, very often we talk about this term time to value, which very often is measured in, you know, how many days is it that the customer's been in that onboarding process? But equally, I've seen NPS, you know, an NPS survey going out as soon as the implementation is marked closed, or a customer gives you what we at Gainsight called a verified outcome to say this is the value that we've derived from this, this implementation. But I'm sure there are many ways to look at if you were to create a dashboard of all of your customers in the implementation and some key metrics that you might want to track. In your experience, Donna, are there some that you find particularly useful for benchmarking or ones that you've picked out that you think are a really good measure to, to understand how your customers are getting on in the implementation process outside of them just calling you and going, look, guys, I'm having a terrible experience and we're going to cancel? Well, again, it really depends on, on what's important. So, for example, at one company I worked with, the goal was to get a percentage of the seats sold as active users within 30 days. So that would be a good measurement. Or is there a certain amount of product usage? Um, are there certain kind of scenarios you want them using in your product that you can measure? That would be a good scenario. So, you know, a lot of it is what behavior are you trying to drive that's going to help you know that customers are getting value. A lot of companies I work with have an understanding that, for example, let's say one company I worked with, they provide workflow automation. And when the customer did one workflow, then, okay, that was good. They got, we got them up and running. But when they had two workflows, that's when they were really sticky and loyal. So great, we need to drive them to the second workflow. That's really what turns the needle, it turns the dial. So really knowing kind of what's unique for your product. Maybe when they created, for example, with Facebook, what was really showed them that, that users were sticky was when they invited 10 people, when they had 10 friends. Now they've got like this whole community and there's some traction. If you just join Facebook and you're on your own, like, you're going to be sitting there going, What's, I don't get what the big deal is, you know, with Dropbox. It's okay. I created my folders, but now I've invited somebody to share my folder. Like that's, then I start to really see, wow, this is so convenient. I can collaborate. I can share. That's when I start to see the value. So you really need to know what the value is with your product. It's not logging into your software. That's one company I worked with said, I know we'll get our users to log into the software. No, logging in is not... <laughs> is not value. So it really needs to be something that is meaningful to the customer that is going to drive them to want to use your product more. So for example, it might be some initial, initial value might be some reports. And it's not just that there's a report, but there's some data-driven insights. There's some workflows, alerts that are triggered as a result of the report. What's going to make your users' lives better as a result yeah. of deploying your product? It's interesting. I've also seen Netflix as well put out some really interest, interesting statement about when a, a customer watches so many movies, they know they're sticky and likely to be there for years to come. So there's there's been some amazing scientific work in the in the B2C world. I think they refer to it sometimes as the, as the North Star. Identify what your North Star and make sure you're relentless about getting your customer to that point. One company I'm working with, called they call it the magic moment. And <laughs> yeah. um, I I do just want to, we were talking about scale a moment ago, and I just want to 
also talk about one company I'm working with, we're building out a self-service onboarding for half of their customers. And these aren't those just the low-paying customers, they're, they're high-paying customers as well, and for thousands and thousands of customers. So onboarding doesn't always have to be high-touch, it can be self-service. And what's unique is, so their platform is big data platform, it's quite complex, but we're building out this uh, self-service journey to ensure that there's the right content at the right time for the right user and building in, which is really going to be impactful, is, a, is an in-app chat so that users can have a high-touch moment when they need it. So I really like to look at like a blended approach. So you don't necessarily have to go from you know high-touch to digital or tech-touch to scale. There's huge opportunities in there to segment, to blend, to have the right touch at the right time. You might have a higher touch onboarding and then it, it gets to lower touch afterwards, but there's huge opportunity to scale. It's not just like we have to move everything to tech touch and if that doesn't work for your product and your industry, you know, there's huge, huge different options. And you can also charge for it. That, I, I believe that that's the best practice is charging for onboarding and customer success in general. So then you can provide those services that really drive the value. Yeah, what, what I love about that, Donna, you beautifully anticipated what my final question was going to be, which is, you know, we've seen a huge rise in product-led customer success and that that kind of blended approach, as you as you call it. And I, I think expectations from customers have never been higher, particularly when people are used to using you know apps on their phone. And I think with the advent of cell phones and apps, you don't get a, a full onboarding experience every time you download an app. You know, you just it's got to be intuitive so you can start getting value straight away. And even though we operate obviously in the b2b world I, I think from a user perspective i think those expectations are just as high people wanted to start using something and then enjoy it and get the value quickly if you have to sit through hours of training and certification and don't get me wrong there are, you know, obviously there's going to be complexity but just to get some early value i think the bar's never been set high high as it is now and i think as time goes on i think it's only going to get higher still so i think it's a continually evolving process and to our earlier point it's such an important part of the customer journey so even if you've nailed it today there'll probably be bigger challenges along in 6 months time that you have to keep refining and keep thinking about your strategy i don't think anyone ever just solves this in one go right Absolutely. So as your company changes, as your products change, as your users change, then you need to always be adjusting. And that's why it's so important to listen to customers so that you're finding out what's working for them. When I interview customers of companies I work with, I like to ask them, tell me about your best onboarding experience. And, you know, there's an opportunity to learn. And that's where we came up with this in-app chat for this big data company I'm working with. We listened to their customers and they said, oh, I love that this other tool I use, we have the in-app chat so I can ask the questions and get the answers when I need it. And that I think is, is you know, going to be quite revolutionary for them. So we learn from our customers. It's important to keep listening. Oh, well, I can't think of a better way of, of ending today's podcast, Donna, but I'm sure lots of people out there listening to this might, might want to get hold of your book. Where can they find it? Well, you can go to my website, DonnaWeber.com slash book. That's D-O-N-N-A-W-E-B-E-R.com slash book. And then it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles and other places where books are sold. Fantastic, Donna. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Always enjoy conversations with you. And thanks again for joining us. Oh, thank you, Adam. It's a real pleasure to be here.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gainsight Game Changer podcast. Please follow, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about all of our episodes, please visit Gainsight.com. This podcast is produced and edited by StudioPod. To learn more about their work, go to studiopodsf.com. Thank you.